Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Will Congress reach a compromise on the 2018 Farm Bill? Coming up, political reporter Liz Crampton will join us to talk about a possible vote this week. We'll find out what could be funded from farm subsidies to federal nutrition programs. We'll also ask what's driving innovation in farming. We'll hear from Tracy McMillan, author of The American Way of Eating, about the new ag practices that are luring newcomers to farming. Who are they? We'll find out just ahead. And we'll hear about Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut, and its programs to encourage kids and adults alike to grow their own food. First, when you think of the dairy industry and where the majority of U.S. milk is produced, you may think of the Midwest. Do you know where the milk you buy comes from? There are dairy farmers in Connecticut and across New England, but a recent story in the Hartford Current has highlighted the struggles some local dairy farmers are experiencing. If you're one of them, join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome back into our studio Greg Ladke, environment and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. He just wrote the piece that I mentioned. Greg, welcome back. Nice to be with you. So let's talk about uh, your story and what led you uh, to report on it, and that has to do with falling milk prices. Yes. uh, Farmers across the U.S. have been struggling with uh, very, very low milk prices for several years in a row now, and that's led some Connecticut farmers, uh, dairy farmers, to just decide to give up, uh, that they can't get enough money for their milk and continue operation on these farms, some of which have been in, in their families and in, in production for decades. Why, why is the price so low? There are a number of different reasons. One is that uh, there's a glut of milk in the U.S. Um, there's more milk being produced, and there are no controls over how much farmers can produce in terms of milk and dairy products. Um, there are also international customers that have uh, fairly recently stopped buying Uh, U.S. dairy products, uh, including Mexico, one of our biggest uh, customers. Um, Milk production around the world is up. And when that happens and uh, the U.S. is not exporting enough milk and dairy products, that means that there's an awful lot of that here in the U.S., stays in the U.S., and that's keeping prices down. That's the that's a main factor. You mentioned that there's no limit in production. We just did a show on Canada yesterday, and in Canada, uh, in Canada, they do have a policy that actually limits production. Is that something that's ever been talked about or considered here in the U.S. Given the prices having uh, been so low for so long? I think that it has been talked about, uh, and. The, the problem there is that we've got this uh, free enterprise uh, attitude, and particularly now with the Trump administration, um, President Trump is very unhappy with Canada, which has a very high protective tariffs for, for milk imports because they've made a, a nationwide decision that they want to keep their, farm, their dairy farmers in, in uh, business and to keep the price of milk high so that they can stay in business. 
Uh, we're focusing in on Connecticut uh, because of a story that Greg Ladke did for the Hartford Current about uh, some dairy farms uh, closing in the the state. How many do we know? How many dairy farms are there in Connecticut? There's about 100 at this point. There's uh, a number of uh, farms that produce uh, also produce goat and uh, sheep's milk, but uh, there's only about 100 farms, dairy farms left that are in production. Um, and some of those are closing, including the one I wrote about most recently, uh, the uh, Greenbacker Farm in Durham. Um, they're actually this week selling, uh, auctioning off their dairy herd of o- over 300 cows. And it's a very sad to see them, uh, the way they care for those animals, and that they're giving up, uh, you know, they've been farming in Connecticut for hundreds of years, that family. I want to bring into our discussion Kai's Orr. She's a fourth-generation owner and herdswoman at Fort Hill Farms and a member of the Farmer's Cow. Uh, Kai, welcome to the show. Yes. Hi. How are you? We're doing well. Uh, we were uh, talking with Greg about uh, his story, uh, profiling some of the dairy farms that are closing and the reasons behind that. Uh, you and your family have been in business, business for a long time. Tell us about yeah. your operation and some of the challenges you face. So uh, we've been farming uh, for well over 70 years here on this part of the farm. And then on our front side of the farm, we've been farming on that for about 300 years. Um, we've conjoined two farms um, and uh, diversifying. Um, farms nowadays, we have to diversify. It's not just about milk and cows anymore. It's, you know, some farms are milk and goats also, and some farms are milk and sheep. Um, right now we have a corn maze. Uh, the corn maze is planted. Uh, we have a uh, creamery um, that we sell ice cream and we sell all of our farmer's cow uh, products in. And uh, um, the other thing is we also, uh, my mother is into lavender. Um, so she has uh, uh, over a thousand lavender plants and uh, we sell all types of lavender products um, and dried, dried lavender. Um, you can pick your own lavender. Um, so, um, and, uh, we're, we're, uh, the technology is growing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not an, a cheap, you know, uh, uh, growing. It's, uh, we're putting in a digester, um, and the digester will, uh, produce, uh, electricity and that electricity will be sold to various businesses and, uh, to the town of Thompson. Uh, we used to produce electricity here on the farm several years ago, uh, back in like the 1900s, and we still have the receipts from them uh, when they were selling. And uh, so we're putting in a digester, and we'll also be able to sell that uh, cow manure. It won't won't be, uh, um, it will be uh, like a solid. Uh, So when a city folk takes uh, manure back to their home, uh, you won't be able to smell it. Guys, um, you mentioned the. I'm sorry. You mentioned the importance yep. of diversifying and also uh, different yep. ways of 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 bringing in um, some profits. When we focus in on your your dairy, um, the dairy that's being produced at your farm, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and how uh, yep. you've either been able to expand or just make do so, with what you have? Yep. So we are expanding uh, with this digester we're putting in. We're putting in a um, a new barn also, and the new barn will be uh, putting in robots. And so our farm will be able to grow um, so uh, as we want to grow for the next generation. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like my kids to, you know, to be able to farm on this farm, you know, in, in their years. How many, um, how so, many cows uh, do you have, Kais? 
we milk 210. We have 500 total. So we have replacement heifers that come up. And then we also have our milking herd right now. Now, have you, um, when we were talking about uh, the price of milk falling for several years now, um, how have have your family been able to sustain your dairy operation? Uh, so um, a big one is diversifying, but also growing in a way of efficiency. Uh, I don't have a Fitbit, but I have 150 cows right now that have a Fitbit. Um, and those Fitbits tell me, you know, uh, if the cow is sick, if she's not feeling well, um, if uh, um, she's eating, lying down, walking. So um, that's uh, it's all about efficiency. Um, so uh, we're we're uh, we're able to grow our farm because we're we're diversifying and also being efficient and uh, trying to make it easier for our employees to. Uh, you know, get other chores done here on the farm. This is where we live. On the phone with us, Kai's Orr, a fourth-generation owner and herdswoman at Fort Hill Farms in Thompson, Connecticut, also a member of the Farmer's Cow as we talk about uh, the, the dairy industry as well as how uh, dairy farms are able to remain open. Uh, in studio with us, Greg Ladke, environment and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. Uh, he recently uh, reported on a story about some dairy farms closing because of the price of milk being so low. Um, Greg, we heard about uh, what Kai's and her family are doing to diversify diversify, uh, this new technology, having cows wear Fitbits. Uh, are you hearing that from other farms? Yes, definitely. Um, the it, it, it seems like the farms that are able to do what Kai's uh, f- family is doing on their farm uh, are the ones that are uh, still hanging on, still surviving, uh, even uh, prospering. The uh, She talked about robots and uh, more efficient technology. And I think it, it's interesting that while the number of dairy farms is declining in Connecticut, the number of dairy cattle is remaining about the same. So as these farms close, uh, other farms are, are picking them up. And uh, some of the farms, the largest one in Connecticut, I believe, is in Ellington. And they now have something over 200, uh, excuse, excuse me, 2,800 cows. That sounds like a lot. But uh, in the Midwest and in California, that would be a tiny operation. Is there a downside uh, to the cows remaining in the state because then they're continuing to produce milk and adding to the oversupply on the market? That's the other side of this uh, efficiency coin that Kai's is talking about. The more efficient these farms are, uh, the more milk they produce, uh, and that continues the the oversupply situation and helps keep those prices down. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. John's calling from Meriden. John, go ahead with your question or comment. Yeah, my question is, what can we do to help local farmers here in the state? I've always tried to buy American products my whole life. I've even returned some products once I've got them home you know, hardware products, finding out they were not manufactured locally. Um, and I've been told by friends of mine, I, I know the Greenbackers I, I, uh, from scouting years ago, living in the Meriden area. I, I've been told by some local farmers that have given up farming, don't buy uh, farmer's cow, don't buy this, it's not really Connecticut. And, and I'm always trying to focus on supporting these Connecticut farmers. What what can I do to do more for local farms? Good question, John. I'll put that uh, question to Kai's Orr because I, I mentioned their farm, Fort Hill Farms, is a member of the Farmer's Cow. Kai's, how do you respond to John? Maybe you could explain what the Farmer's Cow actually is. 
So the Farmer's Cow is six family farms located here in Connecticut. And uh, we are, uh, you know, we're, you're welcome to come out to our farms, to tour our farms, um, but it's all about buying local. So, you know, buy uh, uh, your local product from, you know, I, um, I don't know if, um, if where there's another farm in uh, Meriden, but, um, you know, it's important to know your farmer. So um, whether you buy the farmer's cow, whether you buy uh, roadie fresh from in Rhode Island, whether you buy mountain dairy, it's all about uh, buying local. Um, we're also part of Cabot Cheese, um, Agrimar. Um, so as long as you are buying a local product, you are helping a local farmer. Uh, Greg Ladke is also in studio with us, and I started the the show um, wondering uh, when do we know where our milk comes from when we buy it in the store, uh, and, and I'm curious where does Connecticut dairy go? Uh, I think it stays pretty much in the, in this region. Um, I don't think that Connecticut is exporting much uh, to outside the U.S. Um, there are, uh, as Kai's is talking about, uh, a lot of the milk that is produced in Connecticut goes to cheese. Um, which is a very high value product. Now, one of the one of the th- problems with President Trump's uh, imposition of tariffs is the retaliation tariffs from Euro- Europe and Canada, and cheese is one of those targets for European the European Union uh, to place high tariffs on American cheese. That is not good for dairy farmers in Connecticut or across the country. Um, so it's going to it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Guys, do you have a response uh, for that? No, I just uh, you know uh, it's important. Uh, just you know buying local. Uh, you know whether you buy cheese, whether you buy ice cream, whether you buy butter, um, it all helps. You know, but we encourage to buy milk um, because that pushes the milk market. Mm. Now, Greg, you also reported on subsidies that help uh, Connecticut farmers. Uh, tell us about uh, this subsidy. I think some of the money was restored um, this last session, but the problem is a lot of the money set aside has been raided by the state legislature over the years. Yes, uh, this is a, a the money comes from uh, fees that are paid on real estate transactions, and that uh, that's several millions of dollars uh, every year probably more than 10 million. And uh, the, those fees are split up between a number of different programs. And one of them is this dairy subsidy. Uh, a number of year, few years ago, they were uh, putting $5 million or more into this uh, dairy subsidy. But as the Connecticut's government has gone into deficits over and over again, one of the ways the legislature is deals with it is to raid various funds, including this dairy subsidy fund. Uh, the, uh, so it was down considerably. And then uh, last fall, there was more money taken out of it. Um, just recently, uh, Governor Malloy's administration managed to restore $1.4 million. The legislature in their last, this last session is uh, adding some more back in. But it really isn't enough uh, to compensate for the difference between the cost of producing milk in Connecticut and the, and what milk is selling for, so it's it's a it's a stopgap measure, and it's and it's been cut cut and cut again. Mm. Kai's, uh, can you talk a little bit about the subsidy that Connecticut provides uh, farmers, dairy farmers specifically? Is this something that you've been able to benefit from? Yes, <clears throat> uh, yes, um, we have. Um, 
And there's a lot of uh, programs that farmers can apply for to help, um, like the MPP program, the Margin Protection Plan. Um, and that all, um, you know, that money is um, it comes to us, but it also helps pay uh, our, uh, you know, employees, our feed costs, our local supplies that we, you know, we buy to, um, you know, from the vet uh, to keep uh, to keep our cows uh, healthy. Um, so, you know, um, our uh, our income, you know, uh, keeps our farm going. Guys, what would you like to see Congress do in terms of uh, supporting dairy farmers? So um, I, you know, I, I do think agriculture um, has grown uh, over the last couple of years in support. Um, I do not think, though, that uh, Congress supports the dairy farmers very much, though. Uh, in agriculture in general, yes, I do think they do support, but not the dairy farmers. Um, you know, push um, push for your local farmers. Why are we buying milk from California, uh, you know, Florida? Why aren't we, uh, in our grocery stores, why aren't we putting local milk in, in the grocery store? Guys, <clears throat> um, can I ask you, can I ask you when you say that milk's coming from Florida and California, what, what brands are they under? Because when people are buying milk, do they see that on the label? Um, they should, um, but uh, it, it's a various um, it's various uh, brands that um, that can come in. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, your your almond beverage, your almond uh, your silk beverage. Um, you know, it's not milk. Um, you can't milk an almond. Uh, you know, it's, uh, that's, um, your, your proteins, your enzymes are in real milk, cow milk. Um, the, um, the almond, um, they call it almond milk because they were able to combine the almond and milk in one word. There's no space. But, it, um, so when people say, you know, I'm drinking almond beverage or, you know, they call it almond milk, but it's not. Um, so we strive that, you know, why don't you drink a real a milk product um, or cheese or butter? I wanted to go back to Greg, Greg Ladke, reporter for the Hartford Current again. Uh, he did a story about some of the, the dairy farms closing in Connecticut. Uh, you've spoken with the, the ag commissioner. Is this uh, expected, to, this trend to continue? Because, again, do we know if dairy prices are going to remain low? I don't think anybody uh, really knows what's going to happen. Um, the The tariffs that and the trade war that is being discussed is going to play a big role, I think. Uh, right now, and there it continues to be this glut of dairy products in the U.S., and it doesn't seem like we're going to bring back some of these international customers like Mexico anytime soon. So... I think the struggle is going to continue for a while. We've been focusing in on just the, the price of milk and how it's been low for so long. But in your story, you also profiled the fact that costs for uh, farmers in the state for electricity, shipping, feed, much more expensive than other big dairies, dairy states like Wisconsin. Yeah, that's, the, that's another problem that I've heard repeatedly from uh, farmers here and, and agricultural officials is that uh, they feel that the dairy system is sort of run by the big, big uh, industrial scale 
uh, dairy farms out in the Midwest and Wisconsin and Ohio and California and Florida, and that smaller farmers here in New England are sort of getting short shrift. Um, so it's it's a it's a difficult it's a tough situation to be a farmer here in in high cost high taxes high uh, production costs uh, Connecticut and the rest of New England as well. Um, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask Kai's Orr again, uh, a herdswoman at Fort Hill Farms, a fourth generation owner. Uh, Kai's, what keeps uh, you and your family uh, interested in farming? So um, if I can tell you I learned anything this year, it's uh, been positive in farming. Um, I, farming runs through my blood. Uh, my grandfather farmed. Uh, his, gran- his father started this farm, and he kept it going, and I will keep it going. My father passed away this past March, and um, my plan is to, uh, you know, he, I feel him over me, and I feel him watching me. And, um, you know, he was, he, he was the one that strived this farm to where it is today. And I plan to, uh, to keep it going, uh, to, to, uh, I have some big shoes to fill. Um, to, I think uh, we're, I think we're very lucky that a lot of Connecticut farmers are so stubborn. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And the next generation, you know, I'm 24 years old and I'm running this dairy farm. Um, it's been a rough year. Um, not just because of milk prices, but also, you know, I looked up to my father and, uh, you know, he was, he was, uh, um, he had everything, all the answers, you know, and, uh, now my boyfriend and I, we came home from college, uh, several years ago and we'll keep farming. Well, Kais, thank you so much for sharing uh, your story about your family farm. We wish you the best. We thank you for joining us today. Yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Again, that's Kaiser, a herdswoman at Fort Hill Farms in Thompson, Connecticut. Also, thanks to Greg Gladkey, environment and agriculture reporter for the Hartford Current. We'll tweet out links to his stories at Where We Live. Thanks again, Greg. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, the world's population continues to grow. That means food production will need to meet the demand. So who are the people becoming farmers and what new crops and farming practices have they embraced? We're going to find out more after the break, and you can join us too, 860 This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Some farming traditions have lasted centuries, but innovations have entered agriculture too. Are these new practices encouraging more people to farm? How do they impact yield and access to food? Joining our conversation now by phone is Tracy McMillan, a National Geographic contributor, senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University, and author of The American Way of Eating. Tracy, welcome to our show. Good morning. So we wanted to know what's driving this recent wave of innovation and experimentation. Sure. So, I mean, there's a number of things that that we're seeing happening. Certainly, there's a lot of concern about the impact of climate change and the booming population, right? So the number that gets thrown around a lot, that will be at, I believe it's 9 billion by mid-century. We're going to have to figure out how to feed everybody, even as our climate is changing, which means all the ways that we've been growing food are going to have to change, too. So that's a lot of it. But I think you also see a lot of movement just in terms of social forces and sort of different communities um, coming back to wanting to be part of agriculture and sort of reclaiming that. So you see that a lot in the U.S. Uh, with sort of African-American communities and folks coming in as well as, 
you know, um, immigrants who've come from agricultural backgrounds, right, going into farming as they come to be part of the U.S. Mm. And when you talk about social movements, tell us, was it just in the last uh, few years, or when did this phenomenon really start? Well, I think what you end up seeing is that um, there was a big settlement with the USDA um, during the Obama administration with black farmers. Um, There's a lot of um, very negative practices from USDA towards black farmers, um, and this was sort of, um, in some ways, a way to make up for it, I think. And what you can also see then is more and more folks coming back and saying, you know what? The history of black folks in the South and slavery is a heavy one and it's terrible, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to be a part of agriculture, right? Certainly there's a lot of uh, black farm communities, particularly in the South, but also in the North, um, where folks said, you know, this is our history and this is our heritage and this is something we want to be a part of too. Uh, in studio with me is Darlene Yule, Farm Education Manager at Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Darlene, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you. I was curious if you could add to what Tracy was saying about uh, the changing demographic of those who want to farm, particularly uh, non-white. Uh, yes, I think uh, you see that happening more frequently. Um, in my past experience working with um, community gardens and um, with Farm to Preschool in New York State, um, you're seeing a lot more... Um, more urban uh, kind of farms pop up, um, you know, keeping a flock of chickens in your backyard. Or um, right now at our farm, we're doing a 12-week course on beekeeping, beekeeping in your backyard. And so those opportunities are out there. And as Tracy mentioned, as refugee and immigrant populations come in from societies where growing your own food and cooking your own food is more prevalent, I think you're seeing that more frequently in the U.S. So just changing this idea that uh, to have a farm, you need to be living out in the country and have like several acres. You can actually be doing it small scale in your backyard, depending on your ordinances. Yes. With, yes. with the chickens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And West Hartford just uh, recently passed the opportunity to have bees in your backyard, which is one of the reasons why we're running this course. That's good to know. Um, I wanted to go back to Tracy McMillan. Can you give us some examples? We mentioned that there are innovations happening. So uh, can you talk through some of them with us, maybe starting with aquaponics? Uh, sure. So, I mean, aquaponics is a system where you're growing both greens and fish off of the same closed loop system. This is actually drawing off of a traditional Chinese practice uh, where, and, and this is centuries old, right? People would be growing rice and then the water in the rice paddy, they would have fish, they would have, um, was, um, they would have, sorry, they'd have fish or ducks and things like that, right? They could eat the pests and then also fertilize the water. And so, you have seen this practice get adopted into often small footprint um, urban or semi-urban farms. Um, so, uh, you know, I wrote for um, NRDC's magazine on Earth last year about a place called Ouroboros Farms out in California, which is um, a large greenhouse operation that has uh, floating uh, beds of greens. And there's a closed-loop system where the water for the greens is fed into fish ponds with tilapia, Uh, The tilapia fertilize the water, and then um, that goes into the greens, which then cleans it, gets fed back into the tilapia system. And this is something you also see in quite a number of urban farms. Uh, Will Allen, who um, is the MacArthur Award-winning urban farmer from Wisconsin, has has done a lot of work around this. And so you'll see it in quite a number of urban farms around the country. This is where we live. Uh, We're looking at innovations in farming and who the new farmers are across our country. If you're one of them, you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, 
at where we live. Uh, Tracy, you've also written about uh, maybe some other uh, crops, so to speak, that uh, people may not know a lot about. But when we're talking about uh, you know hotter temperatures, less rain, some of these crops are a good thing, including intermediate wheatgrass. Uh, yeah, so this is um, a project coming out of the Land Institute in Kansas. So they've been working for a long time on developing perennial grains, right? So one of the issues with the way we currently grow most of our grain is it's an annual crop. So every year, right, you've got to go in and tear up all the dead crop out of the soil. You've got to replow it, right? There's all this stuff that happens where a lot of nitrogen and carbon gets released into the atmosphere and the water system, and you lose a lot of soil that way, too. Right? There's a lot more erosion. So if you have a perennial crop that just stays in the ground and can fix nitrogen in the soil, that's you know, better for the environment. And if you can get the yields up there, right, can provide a good income for folks. So they've developed um, something they're calling Kernza, but it's based off intermediate wheatgrass. And so this is something that for years has just grown um, as forage or really was more considered a weed, but they've been able to breed it to get enough of a kernel out of it um, that they're sort of creating flour. There's a number of beers now being brewed with this. Um, and the thing is, is that the root system, um, a typical wheat plant has maybe a one to three foot root system, and this has a 10 foot root system and stays in the ground for um, up to five years of the productive yield. And there's also a focus on insects and, and how they can be bred and turned into cricket flour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's really tempting, right, when we hear about, like, insects as food, we think, right, there's going to be, like, a cricket kebab for everybody to be eating. But what is actually a lot more practical in terms of insect um, agriculture is um, to do to use it as an additive or as a staple part of any kind of processed food, right? So think power bars or cereals, um, things like that. Um, it's certainly not a flour in the traditional sense of like, you know, having gluten and all of that stuff. But you also see um, sort of commercial insect production being geared towards animal feed as well, right? So high protein feed is great uh, for meat and dairy production. And so people are trying to experiment with ways that you could maybe turn an insect production into a way for animal feed with the idea that this is, you know, a much less of a drain on environmental resources. Um, crickets in particular can be grown very much in like a vertical farm sort of industrial scale um, without the same kind of impact that you see from, say, growing a lot of corn in mm. soy. Uh, again, that's Tracy McMillan, National Geographic contributor and also author of The American Way of Eating on the Phone with us. In studio with me is Darlene Yule, farm education manager at Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. We've, we heard about a few different innovations uh, from Tracy. Or is this something that you're seeing um, from the young farmers that you're helping at Our Farm? Well, yes, in fact. So our mission is to engage uh, <laughs> children and adults um, and and engaging in, in learning about agriculture and the environment. And so we know that with uh, young children, the more you expose them to fruits and vegetables at a young age, up to the up to five years, the more likely they are to eat those fruits and vegetables in adulthood. And it's the same with exposing them to agriculture and the environment. So really our focus is to um, have children come to the farm, experience what that means throughout all of the seasons. So with our, uh, we have a farm explorers program where children come five to six times throughout the year, they're really setting up a baseline for agriculture and the environment so that later on they have the opportunity in their classroom, at home with their families, to continue that agricultural experience. Um, so we have um, Annie Fisher Montessori School, which is here in Hartford. Uh, they come to us uh, about 65 days a year, and that's their uh, middle school program. 
and they're really learning some new technology, learning how to farm um, as part of their curriculum. It's a it's a what they call land based learning. Mm-hmm. So they're incorporating some of those new technologies now. So you're encouraging uh, youngsters to have an interest in understanding how food is grown. But I understand you also, our farm also partners with Yukon's Ag Program. So when we look at the young farmers of today, Greg Ladke told me on his way out, the average age of a Connecticut farmer is 60 years old. Uh, so if we want farming to continue, we need new generations of adults that are interested in this work. It's hard work. Um, who are the people that are involved uh, at that age and what are they interested in? Yes, of course. It's always important to to build new farmers, right? And so um, with UConn, we're, we're a 4-H farm, so therefore we're automatically connected to UConn through, um, ex- through the extension program. Uh, but we do work with uh, one of their ag business programs or classes and uh, work with the students directly in which they take some of our programs or projects or products that we have on the farm and write a mini business plan for us. And at the end of the year, they, they present their business plan and it may be something we adopt. It may be, it may not, but uh, it's an opportunity for uh, those, those college students to come to the farm, see how we operate as an educational farm, which is not a typical, um, like of what we heard Kai say earlier, <laughs> our dairy farm. Uh, we are an educational farm. So all of our products are what I call a byproduct of education. Um, so that is one way that we do work with UConn. Uh, Tracy McMillan, are there other higher ed programs uh, in our country that you know of that are uh, embracing these more experimental practices? Well, I think every ag school at this point is probably doing a little bit of that. Um, sort of the flagship for this, though, is UC Santa Cruz, which has a center for um, agroecology and a program that a lot of growers uh, go through, including uh, many of the leading urban agricultural practitioners in the country. So I know Karen Washington, um, who um, came out of the Bronx uh, and now runs Rising Root Farm in upstate New York. I know she's gone through that as well as um, some of the other folks in that program, um, sorry, in, at that farm, as well as um, there's, in fact, a farm school NYC, right, which is an urban ag-focused sort of nonprofit farm education program. I know they send a lot of folks through that program. So UC Santa Cruz is sort of the flagship for that stuff. But I, I think at this point, you'll find more interest in smaller scale and alternative stuff popping up at most of the ag schools, although it's certainly not the center of their curriculum. And Tracy, when we look at innovation in agriculture, what's happening in other countries? Uh, lessons for farmers here, or I'm just curious if you know of any examples. Sure. I mean, a lot of the most innovative stuff that um, gets a lot of media attention, at least, is, is always the sort of the bigger, shinier industrial ag stuff. So, I mean, you see in China, uh, right, which is grappling with like quite a large population with a, f- a fairly small amount of land. And, and actually, you know, they still have quite a number of small farms, right, small ag and, and sort of an almost subsistence of agriculture is a much more common thing there than it is uh, here in the U.S. But at the other end of the spectrum, right, you have things like um, high-rise, they call them hog hotels, right? So pork production facilities that are vertical sort of industrial hog farms. Uh, you also see some of the largest dairies in the world. So I actually was on assignment for National Geographic there last year um, and the year before and visited a dairy that held 40,000 cows. And um, there were ports of China working to develop um, a dairy with 100,000 cows, right? So figuring out that very large-scale stuff. But you also see in Europe, um, in the Netherlands, right, they have universities there that are focusing very much on sort of intensive, high-tech 
greenhouse and heavily monitored kinds of precision agriculture so that they can produce a lot more fruits and vegetables without needing a massive footprint. Uh, Tracy McMillan, again, is author of The American Way of Eating, also a National Geographic contributor. In studio with me on Where We Live is Darlene Yule, farm education manager at Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Uh, so for uh, we know we've heard from some young farmers on our show over the last few years. Uh, if people are interested in farming, um, not just uh, studying the best practices and techniques, but then how do they obtain land to farm? And are there innovative programs in the state that uh, connect people with the land? Uh, That's an interesting um, way to look at things. Um, And I think as more people become interested in where their food comes from, one of the challenges then if you want to start farming, you know, beyond your own backyard, where do you find that land? And so we do have some community garden plots that, um, you know, one person is renting multiple community garden plots and they have plots kind of all across the, the area. And so they're using that as a method of of small farming where they are renting out tiny pieces of property um, from community garden areas to to kind of build a build a farm um, but there are organizations in Connecticut such as land trusts um, and there's the uh, new Connecticut Farmer Alliance, I believe, is is the name of it. Um, and so, so they're kind of uh, you know building incubator farmers in in that way. Well, I want to thank Darlene Yule again from Our Farm in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Also, Tracy McMillan, who's a senior fellow at the Schuster Institute for Investigative Journalism at Brandeis University and author of The American Way of Eating. Tracy, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This week, the Senate may pass the latest farm bill, or rather vote on the latest farm bill. What's at stake in Congress? Political reporter Liz Crampton will have the details coming up, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, we're going to introduce you to two Democrats vying for Connecticut's 5th District Congressional seat, Mary Glassman and Johanna Hayes. We'll learn more about them and about the issues they want to tackle if elected. And of course, we want to hear from you, too. If you have a question for them, you can join us on air and on Facebook Live. That's where we live on Thursday. Now, Congress may be closer to passing a bipartisan farm bill this week. So what's in it? What's at stake if a compromise isn't reached? For more, Liz Crampton's on the phone with us. She's an agriculture reporter for Politico. Liz, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, the latest on the farm bill, the House voted and the Senate may vote this week. Uh, Tell us what's in it. That's right. So the Senate is gearing up to vote on its version of the Farm Bill, um, and it's a massive piece of legislation that addresses everything from conservation to commodity subsidies to crop insurance. And it's a big bill that has to be reauthorized every five years, and Congress is facing a September 30th deadline to get that done. Mm. Now, uh, what's the history on the Farm Bill? This goes back uh, a a long ways. And I'm curious why, uh, I think in your reporting, uh, it has been mentioned that extending the 2014 Farm Bill is actually an unpopular idea, if you could break that down for us. Well, so this is an opportunity um, for Congress to impose changes in farm and nutrition policy. And again, it only comes around every five years. And so all these various stakeholders view it as their one shot to get their reforms in place. It's really all that they have. 
Um, and so it's unpopular to extend existing farm bill just because um, farmers and growers um, want certainty in, in, you know, in the programs that they're receiving. And, you know, they want to be able to make tweaks and changes to the existing programs. And we should mention the the House vote was by a two vote margin. Um, and this curious about uh, what what was some of the the opposition? What were the issues within that bill that they had trouble with? That's right. It really came down to the wire, and we all were on the edge of our seats waiting to see if it would pass. And the way that process um, happened was traditionally um, the farm bill is bipartisan. It's one of the last bipartisan bills that Congress has. Um, but earlier in the process of um, writing the farm bill, um, it was discovered that um, House Ag Chairman Mike Conaway, under the direction, of course, of House Speaker Paul Ryan, wanted to um, make changes to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or food stamps. And Ryan viewed this as, you know, advancing his welfare reform agenda um, by expanding work requirements um, for some recipients of food stamps. Democrats wanted to have nothing to do with that. They were outraged. They walked away from the negotiating table because they didn't want to make any changes to the program. So then that forced Conway um, to pass a farm bill um, with only Republican support. But as we know, Republicans are very divided. Um, they are not uniform in their asks and not uniform in how they view the food stamp program. Um, so it really came down to the, to the final votes um, for the farm bill to get passed and um what's you know exceptional about this situation is it's you know the first time ever in history that um only one party in the house has passed an intact farm bill liz crampton's agriculture reporter for politico as we look into the farm bill before uh, congress the senate may vote uh, this week what are some other differences in, in the senate version liz so the biggest difference is that, you know, the Senate um, doesn't really make any changes to food stamps. You know, they make some tweaks about um, combating fraud, um, but mostly leave the program the same. Um, another pretty big difference that will have to be reconciled in conference is um, the conservation programs. Um, the House um, bill proposes um, deep cuts to conservation, as well as eliminating one of the flagships conservation programs um, run by USDA, um, Conservation Stewardship Program, um, whereas the Senate Farm Bill um, doesn't make any broad title cuts. There's some reshuffling of money within the title, and some programs get boosts and some get um, some, you know, hairline cuts. But um, overall, it, it, it's um, friendlier to conservation efforts. Um, so how to you know, merge those two titles in conference, um, along with the other 11 titles in the Farm Bill, um, will definitely be a difficult task. Is the Senate likely to vote this week, uh, given the July 4th holiday? Yeah, so um, Mitch McConnell has said that he wants to get a bill done before the holiday, before senators skip town. Um, last night, the Senate voted to start debating the Farm Bill. Um, that will you know, continue into today. Um, what's happening behind the scenes is, you know, what amendments will be allowed um, to be introduced on the floor. And um, Senator or Pat Roberts, who is chairman of the Ag Committee, has been a gatekeeper of which amendments can be voted on and which amendments may be included in a sweeping manager's package. Um, so that's the question um, in these next, you know, 24 hours is 
um, what are the final um, changes that senators are going to try to make to the bill before it's voted on. I'm glad you brought up amendments, Liz, because I'm curious uh, with the immigration debate going on now, is there any chance of that being inserted anywhere uh, in this large bill? It's unlikely, but of course, never say never when it comes to Congress. Um, they want to get this bill done, and they don't want to you know, throw any, any bombs into um, the bill that could derail its passage, because of course, um, you know, of course time is ticking, and September 30th is um, approaching, and we still have the real challenge of of this legislation, which is, is the conference. Mm. Um, we started the hour uh, talking about uh, dairy farms uh, closing uh, in Connecticut and in, in, in New England, uh, the price of milk being low for several years. And I'm curious, when what does the farm bill mean for uh, dairy farmers, including um, subsidies that the federal government provides? Right. So there are um, initiatives in the farm bill um, that, you know, authorize USDA to provide support for farmers. And what's, you know, um, interesting about this farm bill is the last farm bill, farms were doing pretty well. You know, um, farm incomes were up. Um, you know, things looked looked good for farmers. Um, whereas this farm bill, that's not the case at all. You know, incomes are declining. As you said, you know, farms are closing on the verge of bankruptcy. And then on top of all of that, there's uncertainty about the trade war. Um, so farmers have been pleading with you know, their lawmakers, you know, please pass the farm bill on time. I want to know what to expect, um, especially in these troubled times. And what about the the trade disputes the U.S. is is now having uh, uh, with Mexico, with Canada, with our EU partners, and how that will trickle down to impact U.S. agriculture, Liz? I mean, we're really seeing, um, you know, farmers, um, you know, like the chopping block, you know, they're the ones that can experience the biggest um, harm in 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 terms of retaliatory tariffs. Um, and industries, you know, especially like pork, soybeans, um, they're the ones who are, you know, central to these threats. Um, and it, it's concerning. Like, we're talking about real money that's at risk, and like these farms depend on exports. So it is like a pretty nervous time for them, and and they're they're afraid. You know, we're hearing that they're worried about whether or not this administration is going to follow through and protect them as as what's been promised. Mm. And these farmers are also constituents uh, in uh, a district uh, where they have uh, lawmakers right now considering a vote. Is that putting some pressure on some of these lawmakers, Liz? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, the first thing that, that farmers say is like, I don't know what this trade war is going, how this is going to impact my farm. And, um, you know, when lawmakers, you know, talk to us about the necessity of getting a farm bill done, they always mention that farmers are facing, you know, tough times right now. And um, we need to pass a farm bill um, because, you know, the tariff threat is just one more thing that they have to deal with. And did you say earlier, Liz, that the, the, the Senate's planning on voting, right? But what are the odds of a compromise could be reached after the conference between the House and Senate bills? I mean, it's hard to make predictions. <laughs> um, but they have said that they're committed to getting it done. Um, what's interesting to watch in this situation is um, House Ranking Member Colin Peterson, um, because he has said that he's going to play ball with his Senate counterparts during conference. Um, you know, and so to see, you know, this three-on-one against Mike Conway will be interesting to watch, and um, what changes may have to be made in the Farm Bill in order for Peterson to unleash Democrat support.
You know, earlier we talked about uh, SNAP and uh, the, the House Republicans supporting uh, making uh, work requirements uh, stricter for recipients. I was wondering, uh, we just heard got a tweet from a listener who writes, wish more people understood that most recipients of SNAP are already working. Work requirements and documentation of exemptions will add unnecessary bureaucracy and lead to people going hungry. Uh, so this is something, again, that the Democrats are listening to uh, in, uh, when, they, when they go to vote. That's right. And and Democrats are having to make the calculus, you know, we will walk away from supporting this farm bill um, because of its changes um, to nutrition programs, um, hoping, of course, that they could retake the House in November and be able to write their own farm bill if, of course, this current farm bill um, doesn't work out. Liz Crampton, again, is agriculture reporter for Politico. We'll tweet out some links at where we live. Liz, thank you so much for talking with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's show uh, produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Kion Wolf, Katie Tolarski. Our WNPR intern today is Jason Perez. And don't forget, on Thursday, we're going to have uh, the first of many candidates uh, before that uh, August 14th primary coming in uh, this, uh, this Thursday with candidates for the 5th District. The Democratic candidates will be joining us, Mary Glassman and Johanna Hayes. And we'll be on Facebook Live, too. So make sure you send us your questions. And we look forward to speaking with you on Thursday.